exists to bring to light the legalism and abuse in the independent fundamental Baptist movement and to encourage believers to grow in grace through the scriptures. Now here's your host, John Hollyfield. And welcome everybody back to for Freedom Podcast. I am your host, John, and uh, I'm here with James. Mm-hmm. How we're doing? <laughs> doing great. And uh, we are back today, and this is going to be part two of our refutation of the I Believe the Book podcast. We ended on sort of a cliffhanger note there with uh, one of the clips, and so we're going to pick up on that. And joining us back with this is Pastor Dr. Reverend Brian Townsend. Brian, welcome back. Well, well, thanks for having me. And um, just for the record, I am not a real doctor. Are you an honorary doctor? I don't even have an honorary doctorate. We'll give you one. I am 22 hours away from my (laughs) MA. So there you go. Well, we were handing out doctorates the other day, so it's just only right that uh, you should get one. We can give you one. I need one. Y'all go ahead. Well, I'll do it. I love those, the Northwest Seminary that hands out doctorates on Twitter all the time. That's pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty great. <clears throat> all right. So we are uh, back going back at the King James Onlyism. And uh, the I believe the book podcast, just as a refresher, uh, they did a podcast on believing the book. And the premise of the podcast is about how people are leaving church, leaving the faith, young people are doing this and therefore the premise was that they wanted to do a podcast that addressed some of these big topic issues and questions to try to show people that there's reasons to believe the book and um so we're in the middle of doing king james onlyism and then they released an episode which i don't think it, i don't think they even knew it existed so i don't i'm not trying to say that it was in response to us but they released an episode on believing the book believing the king james version as the only book and so we spent the last episode going through many things that was said by the host and the guest and and covering that, but we didn't get through all of it, so we're going to pick up today. And James, would you play that first clip so we can get back at um, what we left off with? Right. So then the next step for them would be to go to the original autographs. Well, the original autographs, and for those who may not know, that's where the uh, authors took pen and put pen to paper. Yeah. Okay, the original autographs. And they would say, well, inspiration's there. Well, if we have a promise of preservation, which even they agree mm-hmm. with on some level, the original autographs are non-existent now. The promise has failed. The closest that we can get to them in any manuscript, good or bad, is right in the 300s, 300s right. AD. Right. Okay. So that's as close as we can get yeah. to the originals. Okay. 
There you have it. The closest we can get, this is one of the the big errors that we sort of ended with last time, was that the, the they claimed that the closest that we can get to the original autographs is 300, around the 300s. Brian, what say you? Well, um, that is completely inaccurate. Um, and I will say that the um, – I don't believe this is done out of malice on their part. I think just maybe, just maybe mistaken. Um, the earliest manuscript we have, not a complete manuscript, but certainly one of the manuscripts we have, if you will Google P as in pony 52, P52, you'll see what's called the Rylands Library Papyrus, paper, excuse me, 52. It's a fragment that was found and it is dated to the early, mid, early to mid second century. 125 to 150 AD, uh, which doesn't really affect the argument, but factually we did have manuscripts several, several before the 300, not complete manuscripts as in like Alexandrinus or Sinaiticus by any stretch, but um, we did in fact have manuscripts from the second and third century well before the 300s. Yeah, and even when you think of that though, when we find manuscripts that are 300 200 ad whenever it is um it goes to validate this the value of scripture and how our translations now line up so clearly with even those early manuscripts yeah uh, so i actually thought just thought about this and i i wonder if and i can't get into his head and i'm not trying to you know but i'm just just speculating here um but I almost wonder if when he's referring to that the earliest manuscript we have is in the 300s, if he's referring only to recognizing the Byzantine line as the acceptable manuscripts being the closest to the original. Now, to my knowledge, and again, that's imperfect, the, the oldest manuscript in the Byzantine text-type tradition that we have is around 390 to 400 AD. And there's no, no manuscript that dates before that. So maybe he's thinking along that lines. Maybe he's, he's referring to it's the Byzantine line, but like Brian said, we have actually quite a few um, uh, manuscripts uh, that are actually end up being part of the Alexandrian text type that, that date earlier than three, than, 400 AD and 300 AD uh, and it goes back to about 130 is 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 the closest we have which is which is technically only about 35 to 40 years after the time of the last author of last human writer of scripture the apostle John yeah John when you say Byzantine you're actually referring to the perfect Antioch text is that correct the and they refer they refer to it as the Antiochian <laughs> The Antioch. Okay, so Antioch. when you hear that, that's what you're thinking. Okay. All right, James, why don't you go ahead and play the next clip for us there. People who are not King James only, do they believe, didn't you tell me recently you even watched a, a, a podcast or listened to a podcast where they say, yes, they do believe in the promise of preservation. Is that correct? Sure. Now, they reject it in Psalm 12, 6, okay. where you and I would probably go. Would start. Yeah, yeah. We, we would start there because uh, there is a promise of preservation. Sure. And the context is words. Yeah. If you read down through that, it's constantly yeah. speaking about words. 
All right, so here he is speaking of uh, the Psalm 12, 6, and 7 argument. This is one we wanted to address. Before we get into it, we actually have another clip uh, of someone speaking about this. So this stuff is is more uh, spread out. Uh, people, There's more people that believe in this. Here's another clip of someone speaking of the Psalm 12, 6, and 7 argument. Scripture says in Psalm number 12, the words of the Lord are pure words. Pure means without any admixture of error or corruption. If that bottle says 100% pure water and you put one drop of poison in it, it's no longer pure water. Okay, so the words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times, thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Now, the Bible colleges almost universally, the seminaries almost universally believe that God once upon a time gave his pure word, but it got lost. Once upon a time God gave his pure word, but man corrupted it and couldn't keep it. We believe that the Lord who gave his word in purity kept and preserved his word in purity. We believe that. Luke chapter 21 and verse 33 says this, Luke 21, verse 33, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my, not word, words, every last single one of them shall not pass away. When that sun no longer shines, when that moon is turned to blood, when God dissolves this earth and melts the element with a fervent heat, every word that God authored and put in this book will survive. When God creates a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness, he will not write a new book. He'll still go by this one. So we believe the Bible to be the perfect inerrant word of God. Now, when I say that, you say, which one? Well, it couldn't be the NIV. The people that wrote it said it's not perfect, it's not inerrant. The New American Standard doesn't claim to be perfect and inerrant. The ERV doesn't claim to be perfect. That clip just kept going and going and going. You made all it, right. though. I know. <clears throat> okay. Uh, all right. So we sort of dealt last time with the idea of the, the words or idea, thought, argument. But I want to go back to the Psalm 12, 6 and 7. The words of the Lord are pure words like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them for this from this generation forever. And this is a passage that is brought out <clears throat> to rest the King James-only position on a, uh, as they would say, biblical position. Why? Uh, I'm going to ask you guys this. I'm going to uh, turn it over to you guys first. Why? Is this such a bad and terrible argument? Well, I would begin by saying I believe that Jesus said, my heaven and earth will pass away, my words will never pass away. I believe that we have the word of God preserved to us, but to claim, okay, so... What gives this man the unilateral authority to say that the King James is the sole place God preserved his word? You know, the Catholics can say the Vulgate is where it was preserved. You know, uh, 
the, the Greeks could say, I mean, like all of us have, I don't understand what is the authority or the source behind saying this is the only one. I mean, like, and you know, this is a little bit elementary to me, but the word King James are not found anywhere in scripture. So I don't know how you can say that that particular one is it. We're building a doc. I mean, that's extra biblical doctrine to say this is one. You will not find the King James version, King James, you won't even find King James in scripture. How can you build an argument on that alone? It's not in scripture. Um, that's a very simple elementary way of putting it, but it's just, you can believe in biblical inerrancy and you can believe in preservation without making a dogmatic claim that this one throughout the history of church, church history for two millennia is this one's it. Yeah. And when they, when they use the argument, the, the NIV, the ESV, the A, NASB, whatever, don't claim they're perfect. I don't remember reading when I read through the King James uh, preface, any of them in there said that it was a perfect translation. What I read and what we talked about last time was that they all said, Hey, let's keep improving on this. Yeah. Let's keep making it better. Let's keep continuing the process. That's why for seven other uh, revisions, they continued the process. So to say that this is the, and, and that argument, I hate that argument by saying, if God, you're basically saying God is so small that he couldn't preserve his word. He couldn't keep his word. I don't remember ever in Bible. Unless he did it, unless he did it in this untainted, perfect um, uh, English translation that we chose. Yeah. I don't remember any in college ever a teacher saying that, you know, they taught that whatever, however he said it, all the, the manuscripts were lost and man just sort of created their own. I don't, that's the first I've ever heard that. And he said, universally among almost every seminary that's what's taught maybe it's different for brian he's a little more educated than me but i don't remember that being taught john walk us through psalm 12 psalm 12 walk us through that yeah see one of the, i want to go back to one of the things that that the gentleman said the first one said something about the context in psalm 12 and 6 12 psalms 12 6 and 7 is, is words and I, I have to fundamentally disagree with him on that. I don't believe the context of that passage is referring to the words being preserved. Uh, I, I am going to read in a New King James, uh, because that's what I have handy. Um, it says, Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. All right, talking about people, talking about men. They speak idly, everyone, with his neighbor, with flattering lips and a double heart, they speak. Verse 3, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongues that speaks proud things. Verse 4, who have said with the tongue we will prevail with our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? Still, the, 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 the object is, is people. For the oppression of the poor, verse 5, here's the key. For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in safety for which he yearns. Now, what do you have the dynamic happening in verse 5? You have the oppression of the poor, the sighing of the needy. That's your object. And then you have the Lord speaking, and this is what he says. These are his words in this context. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. Verse 6 refers to those words that he just said. 
saying you can trust this, the oppression of the poor, the sighing of the needy. The poor and the needy can trust when he said that he will set them in safety because the words of the Lord are pure words like silver tried in the furnace of earth. Now, verse 7, staying with the context of the oppression of the poor and needy, you shall keep them, guard them, protect them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. The wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. The context is not the preservation of the words of the Lord. I believe it's the preservation of that in verse 5, the poor and the needy. The interesting thing that uh, in Matthew Henry's concise commentary, uh, he says, God will work deliverance for his oppressed people. His help is given in the fittest time. Though men are false, God is faithful. Though they are not to be trusted, God is. The preciousness of God's word is compared to silver refined to the highest degree. How many proofs have been given of its power and truth? God will secure his chosen remnant, however bad the times are. And he goes on to say, unlike the worthless words of the deceivers, the word of the Lord is like precious silver that is heated seven times in a crucible before it is poured out into the mold. His word is flawless and can be trusted. His word is precious and must be valued. God is able, and this is his comment on verse 7, God is able to protect his godly people from the lies of the enemy. And to... Uh, we're getting in here. Uh, one of the directions we want to go eventually in, in the podcast is the idea of interpretation and hermeneutics. And this term comes up called between exegesis and eisegesis. Exegesis is bringing out what's there. Eisegesis is taking something you have and reading it into scripture. And I've got to say, using Psalm 12, 6, and 7 as the linchpin for your King James only argument is probably one of the most gross offenses of eisegesis I've ever seen because you have just read a English translation that was written over 2000 that was produced over 2000 years after these words were written and said it as if this passage is speaking of it. And just like Brian just said, where in Psalm 12 does the words of the Lord refer to the King James Version of the Bible. John, I'd like to throw in, even if the context, which I don't believe it is, if the context were the words of the Lord, say it were, just say the other, I'm playing devil's advocate on the other side here. If it were referencing the words of God, even to say then that that word of God exclusively means King James, I mean, that. Even making that application is a reach and a very far stretch. But I don't well, believe that it is does a another thing. It does another thing. It makes Psalm 12, 6, and 7 pointless for generations of Christians for over 2,000 years. Yeah. All that's what it's talking is profitable. About. Yeah. And, and the ESV actually, and I know this, this just drives them absolutely crazy because they deny that, you know, they, they discount the ESV, but the ESV, I believe, gets it right. This is how the ESV translates Psalm 12, 6, and 7. I got the words it of the Lord are, you got it? Go ahead and read it, James. Uh, it says, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. 
I do like how John MacArthur says that uh, he sort of summarized this. He says that God's word heals people and man's word hurts people. And as he looked through this and as he studied that, and that's, that's so true. The, I mean, how many of us can affirm that man has hurt us with their words? Oh, yeah. Uh, and yet God's words here are purifying words that heal us and make us complete. Sure. So. All right. Anything? I think that covers the Psalm 12, 6, and 7. All right. Yeah. James, go ahead and do this. I, Brian had talked to me off air uh, about some of these issues concerning this Matthew and Hebrews thing. So I'm excited about um, this clip. So go ahead and play this next one. So the third argument is that Scripture cannot exist in all the copies of the original languages due to the fact that there's strong historical evidence that at least two New Testament books were written in Hebrew and then translated into Greek soon after. So the original language is historically for Matthew and Hebrews would be Hebrew. And you do not find a Hebrew copy of either one of those books that wasn't later translated right. or made in, uh, right. from a copy. So again, you can't have it. It's mm-hmm. not here. You cannot have it. Brian, I'm going to let you go first. Yeah. Um, so we covered Papias last week, talking about how Papias, wrote, or Papias was referenced in the mid-2nd century, mid to late 2nd century, saying that Matthew wrote his gospel to the Hebrew in Hebrews in Hebrew, and then everyone translated into Greek as they were able, I think is the quote very similar. Here's the issue with referencing Papias. We have no firsthand account of Papias' life, his own writings. We have no original sources of Papias. The, The reason that we even have the quote that we do about how Matthew wrote his gospel in Hebrews, and then it was translated to Greek as everyone were able, was by a fourth century church historian named Eusebius, who Eusebius was a church historian that wrote much, much, much of the chronicles of the church. And uh, in the days of, he was actually great friends with Constantine. You know, Constantine lifted the veil and turned everything on its head towards Christianity with that being. Well, Eusebius is the reason that we have those words of Papias. These are not Papias sitting, writing down everything that he believed, not what he heard. This is a, you know, Eusebius lives in the fourth century, three, I forget when the exact volume of his work was, but in the 300s. Well, Papias, this quote was somewhere 150 to 175, so it's 150 years. Eusebius is recording the words of Papias after the fact. We have no way of putting Papias' words in context with what he meant by that. And I said last week, it means something, but there's no way to definitively tell what it means. Um, And just another thing, I talked to my uh, school's chief chief academic officer, PhD, and he's really brilliant. And his words exactly were that people use Papias words to prove their own argument more often than not. He said, because there's no way for us to say definitively what Papias meant because we just don't have the firsthand account of it. We don't have his own writings. That that most of the time, people that use Papias are ones that are coming to the arena. And he doesn't know what we're talking about. He just told me this. He said that people that use Papias are ones who are trying to prove a point, and they're not using Papias words to figure out what truth was. They're doing it vice versa from a pre- predetermined course of events to determine what 
they're trying to say. And people do that both ways all the time. I will not accuse uh, the folks on the I Believe the Book podcast of such. But my point is, we don't have his firsthand accounts. The reason we even have this quote is because Eusebius, 175 years later, wrote these words down. There's no way for us to put them in context. And it means something that, that Eusebius wrote these words of Papias, but to say that definitively, absolutely yes, and dogmatically, that he that Matthew's gospel was first in Hebrew and translated into Greek, there's no way to even put those words in context as to what Papias meant by that. I, 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 you told me that, and I thought, man, that was such a, to me, just a, a nail in the coffin. I mean, I, I just... I just don't see that that's that's a, a, a good, a wise use of argumentation there with bringing out that point of, oh, Matthew and Hebrews were written in Hebrew and translated into Greek. Um, uh, there's there's not very much proof to either one, and the the sources that could be cited for that are extremely lacking with even credibility. So um, – it's not really an argument to, to hang your hat on at all. No. All right. Let's move to this next one. Um, and uh, I'll explain a little bit. I think we got two clips for this one, but I'm going to explain one in between the clip to explain what we're going to talk about in between the clips. Go ahead, James. So the fourth thing is as for the rest of the New Testament, excluding Matthew and Hebrews, if we are trusting the Alexandrian line of manuscripts for mm -hmm. our scripture, well, just in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are 3,000 plus what we call textual variants or differences yeah. just in those four books alone yeah. where they can't even where they agree. disagree. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, just those two manuscripts. So we couldn't say that's Scripture. Which one of those is Scripture? I exactly. If they disagree with one another, how, how do you decide which one of them is Scripture? Okay, so I know last time we talked about the – we spent a lot of time talking about and the difference between Byzantine Alexandrian manuscripts. So there is one element of that argument that we did not cover – um, and that is the reason that is used for why Alexandrian manuscripts are bad. Now, uh, to explain that, uh, James is going to play this next clip here. And when I say there's two Bibles, you go into a bookstore, I know. And you see a... Okay. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. And you see a bunch of them on a shelf, and you go, well, no, there's got to be more than two. But the fact is that every Bible that you can buy today comes from only one of two locations. There's a line of manuscripts that come from, from Antioch and Syria, there's another line of manuscripts that come from Alexandria in Egypt. Now, what do you know about from the Bible? What do you know about Antioch and Syria? I think it was the place where the disciples were first called Christians. Absolutely. We got our, our name Christian comes from Antioch. It was also the head of the New Testament church. When the Apostle Paul, when he went out to, on a missionary journey, he, he left from Antioch. When he came back, he came back to Antioch. That was the center of New Testament Christianity. In fact, many of the originals that we have today may have been penned there. All right, today in existence on this planet are 5,909 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, some entire, some entire books, some, some pieces of manuscript the size of this sugar pack. The vast majority read with what is known as the Texas Receptus. That is the Greek that comes out of Antioch. So it comes from Antioch through the Texas Receptus into the King James Bible right here on this desk. It'd be like this coffee, okay? This is the line of manuscripts, the vast, bigger than this one, because most of them come out of Antioch. The other line of manuscripts, which officially is known as the critical text, which if you think about that, just the fact that it's critical should tell you there's a problem, they went down to Alexandria, Egypt. Now, what do you know about Egypt from the Bible? 
not a lot of good. It kind of represented the world. Israelites were in slavery. Absolutely. In fact, when God wanted to use a bad example in uh, in the book of Revelation, he wants to say something about bad about Jerusalem. He compares it to Sodom and Egypt. So the only good thing about Egypt is it can, it can be used as a bad example. So good manuscripts went to Alexandria. Okay, so here it is. This is the reason put forth that the reason we, the main reason, we talked about some of these fallacies that Alexandrian manuscripts are corrupt, but the main reason why we don't trust Alexandrian manuscripts or even the, the tradition, the Alexandrian text type, is because Egypt is a type of the world and therefore incoming Egypt is corrupt. Now, I'm going to start off this time. I have a quote from James White I want to read, and then a quote from Bob Ross I want to read, and then I'll turn it over to you guys. James White said, actually, the Bible making Egypt a type of the world, which, by the way, is not explicitly stated in the Bible, only implied, does not mean it teaches that all other regions of the planet are untainted by sin. In fact, it implies the very opposite. If the Bible teaches that Egypt is a type of the world— then it does logically follow that the whole world is typified by Egypt, which in the case of the King James onlyism, onlyist would make no region of the entire planet safe for preserving Bible manuscripts. Yeah. So it, it, it's, it's, it's sort of a house of cards argument falling upon himself, uh, falling upon itself here. Bob Ross says this, we should also remember the wonderful providence of the Lord in regard to Moses, Joseph, and the Israelites in Egypt, as well as how the infant Jesus was taken to Egypt as the means of escaping death in Israel during the time of Herod's campaign of infanticide. The Lord is sovereign in Egypt as well as in Antioch, Jerusalem, and Rome. He works his wonders all over. In fact, if you had to have the right place in which the Lord could do his work would have to be a wrong place as the whole world is defiled by sin. Yeah. You know, for me, I think by us having two lines of transcripts, two lines of manuscripts, it's a greater view of preservation. The words of God went to two different regions at about the same time, and yet they were preserved at two different regions, and that's where we get our variants. That's where, and we'll talk about it later. Those textual variants, we get it because of the different areas they're at. And so, if someone were to write a name, it's going to be spelled just a little bit different. Um, but I think it's a greater uh, argument. And uh, but I know Brian is getting pretty fired up over here. So Brian, go ahead and let her rip, tater chip. Let us know how it's going to go here. Okay, I have many things to say here. Uh, this first clip that you played about and with one of the fellows that said that in the Alexandrian, the four Gospels disagree with themselves over 3,000 times. Okay, well, again, we're talking about when he says disagree, I assume he's talking about textual variants. And again, a textual variant can be one of you spelling Jesus, J-E-S-U-S, and another one misspelling it, J-E-S-U-S-S. -S. That is a textual variant, which I assume, and that's just an example, 
that he's counting one of these disagreements, and I'm using air quotes when I when I think he's talking about textual variants. Well, the reason that there are so many textual variants, or what he wants to say, disagreements in the Gospels, the over like when we talk about the amount of manuscripts that we have, predominantly they are Gospels. That you know the early churches, many of them, their Bible was Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, so more, more gospels, more problems as so to speak, you know, um, we have so many copies of the gospels. They're a larger percentage of what we have. Therefore, there are more variants in them, or as he called them disagreements, which is, if you're going to say a misspelling is a disagreement, then we have bigger issues. But, um, so then we go from there to how there's 3000 disagreements. There are variants. Those are not you know, that is not saying that the Alexandrian manuscripts say that Jesus was man, but not fully God. That's inaccurate. That's completely inaccurate. A variant can be as simple something as sentence structure. It is a variant. It is just that. They moderately say something differently or a phrase differently. It's not a disagreement in the context that the Alexandrian is saying that Jesus was not born of a virgin. It's not saying that Jesus was not born the Son of God. It is sometimes often a misspelling, and the, the most of our variants are very easily reconciled, and it's not a disagreement, so to speak. It's human error in that we copy, we speak, we're writing by hand, and sometimes we mistranscribe or things like that. So there's that. Then Sam Gipps said, the fact that it's called a critical text, <laughs> that should even tell us something. Okay. How many of you, do you guys know critical thinking is a good thing? It is, yeah. So critical thinking, learning to think for yourself and not accept everything as it is handed to you is a wonderful skill. It has helped me determine that I am no longer a certain kind of fundamentalist. It, critical <laughs> thinking has helped me think for myself and not be spoon-fed every lie and every miss. Ugh. Oh, so critical thinking. Textual criticism is a wonderful thing. It helps us put the words of scripture where they need to be. And, and you know, I want to say something, but I'm going to leave that alone. Textual criticism, when you're coming from the viewpoint of we're trying to understand what the most original source of what Mark was saying here or Matthew was saying here, it's textual criticism is not a great thing when you're coming from it from the presupposition that you're trying to discredit the Bible. That's not good. But textual criticism, when you're coming from it with a pure motive of trying to understand what in origin, what they were saying is fantastic. And the fact that we, he, I guess he's saying by the critical text should tell us something that it's critical of the King. Again, we're back to this dogma and the preconceived. We're trying to drive home that the King James is the only version so he's saying the critical text, which is critical of that the King James text, he's saying that's a bad thing because we're being critical of the King James. Again, we're, we're talking about stepping over the line, and the reason he thinks critical text is a bad thing or criticism is because it is shedding light that the argument is far bigger than that. Okay, double down on this. So we talk about the streams of Alexandrian manuscripts and Byzantine manuscripts, and for him to say that all modern Bibles are translated from one of two places. It's the Alexandrian or it's the Byzantine. Well, that's just not true. 
you know, you're, you're, there's an eclectic model where we look at, you know, all of the text and, and come together with one apparatus. The New King James is not from an Alexandrian manuscript. It is from uh, the same TR that they're from, and they say there are differences with that. Any, oh, nevertheless. So I'm gonna double down on that. Um, I want to well, talk and about the primary Bible that I use right now, the MEV is a direct derivative of the King James yes. using the yes. text receptive. And they're not yeah. going to tell you that. No, no. They're not going to tell you that. So we talk about how, uh, and even when I was in undergraduate, they said these same things that Alexandria was the place of heresy. It's the world. Uh, Byzantine, Alexandria is where the, not uh, Antioch's where the apostles were. So they go there. Now I want to talk about this. So, so let me go here. Alexandria is in Egypt. It's the type of the world, okay? Um, if you will go to the Council of Nicaea, 325. Um, the Council of Nicaea was called because Constantine was about to march and set up his kingdom over the Roman Empire, the sole, role, the sole ruler of the Roman Empire. And he called the Council of Nicaea to get everyone on the same page on the doctrine of the Trinity. The reason this controversy was necessary was a man named Arian who founded a doctrine called Arianism, which is a heretical view of the Trinity. And Arianism was, was you had some conservatives over here that were saying, no, we believe in the orthodox definition of the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, equally God, equally together. Well, Arianism called everything about the Trinity into question. So we come to this Council of Nicaea, 325. It's a town in modern-day Turkey, Nicaea, I believe, if I'm saying that right. All the bishops come together. Arianism has spread, and a lot of pastors are, are, are coming to this false definition of the Trinity until a man named Athanasius comes onto the court, defeats Arianism, not permanently, but the official council of Nicaea declared an orthodox view of the Trinity that the church had always held to and, and combated Arianism as heresy. Do you know where Athanasius was from? Alexandria. Alexandria. So for us to say that, all, again, that all heretics are from Alexandria and that all great theologians are from Antioch, it's just false. You know, you go through other church fathers. We have Clement of Alexandria. We have Origen, all of these people from Egypt and the Alexandrian line where, where we come to, come to grips with this. And we come to, to say that all of these manuscripts are bad. All modern Bibles are derivatives of, modern, am I talking too long, y'all? No, no, no. Um, that, that all of these come from there. This is Egypt is bad. Antioch is good. The whole, like you said, John, the whole world is corrupted by sin. And the whole, oh, hmm, I'm about to preach here. The Come Holy on. Spirit is not limited well, to only Antioch. The Holy Spirit does not have handcuffs on him in Alexandria. The Holy Spirit can blow, spirit blow where he wants to. The spirit blows where it desires. You know, this, this, uh, the wind blows where it lives compared to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's wind. And you're not going to box him in your little Antioch argument and debase him in the Alexandrian argument. There's no such thing as a set of handcuffs that we put on him. And let's go further back here and look at Egypt being a type of the world. Where did Joseph and Mary go to protect Jesus when Herod was killing babies? Well, come on. 
went to Egypt. And they told to, but who saying, told them to go who there? Who told them to go there? Yeah, so I was about to say Egypt, the same thing. It was prophesied about in the Old Testament, out of Egypt have I called my son. Why would so God he, send his own son to somewhere that's so wicked and vile and so evil and just so corrupted? I mean, why would God put him in there? And so we come out of that, and Jesus was called out of, out of Egypt. Um, I believe they were in Alexandria. There's a large Jewish population. That's impossible to prove long ways away. Origen, Clement of Alexandria, um, Athanasius of Alexandria, and many other great men of God that were used were from Alexandria. You cannot say that everybody from Egypt is bad and everybody from Antioch is good. God, it just aggravates me because these guys that say God can't be put in a box are doing just that by saying that Alexandria is evil, Antioch is good. Mm -hmm. And I think I've harped long enough about all of that. Let me make sure. Well, did you mention the fact of where the Arian controversy originated? Well, Arian himself, I believe, was from Egypt. But the, okay. the, the, the argument of stick gathered steam, certainly in the area of Byzantine, or Byzantium, excuse me. But, yeah. But again, that's that connecting those two are. It's a. It, I don't want to ever do gymnastics to make it right. Point. It's yeah. it's it's a fallacy that falls on top of his head. And right. another one other interesting thing about Athanasius from Alexandria too, is he's one of the best apologists during that time that did work on the canon of scripture. Yeah. And one of the final ones that put together the 27 New Testament books of, of the canon of the New Testament. And here's this brought out when I learned hey, that hey, this John, brought out a very. Yeah. Hey, Does the King James use Athanasius canon? Absolutely. Where's he from? Alexander. Egypt. Oh, and, they're using that. And, they're using that yeah. Egyptian model for the New Testament. Well, that's one of the things that really brought to my attention when I learned that about Athanasius. And that is this, that. You know, in all of my time, and this is what you never hear talked about, is any King James onlyist or even in fundamentalism, you never hear really much discussion at all about canonization. Yeah. Or canonicity. I mean, it's just not a topic that's ever dealt with in any type of Bible college setting at all because one falls on top of the other. You got to start speaking honestly about canon and where that came from. If it, it then it just collapses on the whole premise of your King James onlyism. So we don't use manuscripts that are from Alexandria, but we'll use their canon. <laughs> yes, is that right? Yeah. And, and uh, I want to I want to circle I'm going to circle back here. All right, and uh, come on, Jim. Yeah, Jim Pasek over here. I want to say something about uh, the comments that you made about the criticism. Uh, so one of the errors that is made with the animosity towards textual criticism is the and, and james white says this often that fundamentalists ha have trouble or struggle identifying categories and they don't understand that there are there are different forms of criticism there is higher criticism and there is lower criticism Higher criticism is the criticism that they lump textual criticism all in one bowl, and that's not the fact. That's not the case. In fact, the intellectually dishonest things that they do when they do that is deny the fact that the very King James translators themselves practiced textual criticism in order to put together the King James version. Mm -hmm. So, 
I don't know. I think we've spoken about James. You got any, any the, comments? The only thing I want to circle back to John, since we're using that terminology today, um, every day in the press secretary office um, is just that thought of how, how much we limit God in some of these arguments, how we're putting God in such this small box that he could only perform if the location's right, if the people are right, if everything is perfect, then that's when God can perform and he can't use a wicked person. He could never use a wicked King in the old Testament. I think he did, uh, but he, but he has, uh, you know, even looking at Samson, you know, a wicked judge who done terrible things, God still used him. And yet we're saying that God can only use good people. David who committed adultery, God couldn't use him, but he was a man after God's own heart. And that's the problem that I see so many times is, we think that we have to put this perfect situation to prove that God can do something. When God says, I'm going to do things, whether you like it or not. That's a, that's actually a very excellent point, James, because the whole Alexandrian type of the world thing just falls apart when you look at how God actually does work throughout yeah. scripture. And, you know, my grandpa always used to say this, and I know he didn't, this didn't originate with him. But uh, my grandpa used to say that God can drive a crooked nail. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and so to say that we could only have the Bible and that it could not have come through this because this is a corrupt area of the world, which I know all three of us just like land blasted that a whole idea. Um, it's just, it's just mis- completely misunderstanding how even the God of the Bible works. Yeah. Exactly. John, before we move on, can I give your listeners – something neat to chew on absolutely um what i'm about to say does not add to or take away from the validity of the bible and it is even impossible to prove it is a theory and a possibility we'll never know but listen to this so constantine becomes the sole master of the of the roman empire um in the 300s first part of the 300s 330 2530 in that range, mm-hmm. 23. Well, Constantine, with the Edict of Milan, granted Christians tolerance for the first time ever and, you know, um, really promoted Christianity. Well, Eusebius, as we have said, the church historian, um, there's a legend that Constantine, the empire, the emperor, gave Eusebius a charge to print, or not print, but to have 50 Bibles commissioned. And we have to understand that in the 300s, to produce an entire, one entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation was an expensive work that would require great wealth to put one together. Are y'all with me? Mm -hmm. Um, Again, whole churches in the fourth century didn't even have copies of the scripture. I mean, the canon wasn't even fully established until three. 70s, 380s, 360s, in that range. But so anyhow, um, in the fourth century, Constantine, we have the legend, issued Eusebius to have 50 Bibles printed. And again, it was very expensive. Um, Fast forward to the 1800s, um, a man named Tischendorf finds in a monastery in the foot of Mount Sinai or the traditional site of Mount Sinai. And they find a Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And some of it was missing in the Old Testament, but the new was not. 
and it dates to the fourth century. It is possible that, that Codex Sinaiticus, the, the copy that we have that was found in the 1800s, is one of those Bibles that Constantine issued Eusebius to copy out. And just food for thought, just it, it doesn't add anything to the argument or take anything away, but just neat to, and it's, Constantine had them ordered in the fourth century, the legend says, and the Sinaiticus dates from the fourth century. Again, we cannot say definitively, it's just food for thought. It's yeah. impossible to say for sure, but just but food for thought. It's another way of showing that God does preserve his word. Yeah. He, he uses people. Constantine was not a great ruler, but he uses people to preserve his word in all generations. Um, and so let's go to this last clip and then we'll finish up the episode for today. And then the last thing I would say is that those who are anti-King James onlyism says that they believe God preserved his word, but none of them can tell you where it is. Right. And that's the problem. Hmm. You know, if, if God preserved his word, then where is it? Where can I go to that's find it. what God says? We believe we have the word of God. Sure. We believe that uh, God has perfectly preserved his word for us in this King James Bible, not that it contains the concepts, but that it is the words of God. And that, that wraps up sort of what they were talking about in that. And that's, that's, we're going to bring this to a close with this, that where is God's word? And they, this is the accusation. And I don't know what the term for this is. I think it's, is it a straw man? This is a straw man sort of uh, statement that they throw out there of saying, none of us can tell you where God's word is. And that is patently untrue. All three of us can be where God's word is. Just our answer is not where they want their answer to be. So it's and, invalid. And in the frame, framework of what they think that it should be. And, um, and so it's, it, it, in, a, in a way, coming to the end of this, and then I'll let you guys uh, add your, your comments, but it, it is it's sort of sad. It's sad because uh, at the same time, they're – there are things, there's, there's growth, there's understanding of, of truth, there's exegesis that is just not happening whenever you are uh, locked in to this type of argumentation. And I do believe that. Um, James, I'll let you go, and then I will make some closing remarks. Yeah, I, you know, to say that to say that there's no word of God anywhere, it it, it's disturbing. It's, it's harding to say that, to think that, because to understand, the, and we said this at our last podcast, to understand preservation and inspiration and not combine the two, when you combine the two, you are taking two big, totally, op, not opposite, but totally things that are, aren't the same, and you're putting them together, and you're saying if it's not inspired, it's not preserved. And it gets that back to that whole point. Yes, I believe that God's word is preserved, but I don't believe that any of the translations are inspired. And that's where we've got to get to that point of understanding. Yes, God has preserved the word that we hold in our hands. The book that I hold in my hands is preserved from generation to generation. And God's words are not going to pass away just as they quoted Jesus. It's not going to. But we've got to get to the point where we understand there is a difference between preservation and inspiration, and they're not the same thing. Um, I would close with this, and if you're listening to this, you have heard three guys who all used to be King James only. 
um, you've heard, and there is, and you, you all that are listening, you don't know always the hearts of the men you're listening to on podcast. And um, we have all presented an academic case, but let me, let me flip my pastor heart into the discussion here for those of you that are listening. We too, at one point, were all King James only. Uh, I don't know that any of us are anti-King James. It's a great translation, reads beautiful. Um, if that's what you use, that's wonderful. Um, but I do ask that you please listen to what we've said today. And maybe some of you are not King James only, but you have friends that are, you have family that are, um, and maybe you're going to recommend them listen to this. I would ask you, who, however you're listening to this, right now, if you've listened to these things with an open heart, your world might be a little shaken, and you might think, well, if the King James isn't the word, what is? And I, I've heard all my life that those Bibles are fake, and it's a hard bridge to come to if you have had this taught to you for most of your life. But John is not doing this podcast for academic information. He's doing it for spiritual transformation. And we're not angry, bitter ex-fundies that just got together today to to make a podcast so that people would see it and get angry. No, that's not our heart. Our heart is for you to let the Spirit of God speak to you about any issue, even if it's about the King James. Um, man, if you knew the heart of the guys that are doing this podcast that love, love, love their people and they're not angry and they're not proud academics that are here to just make a point. All of us love people, the people we pastor, the people we don't. God gives a pastor a heart that he can never shut off. And as we dismiss today, I hope that you will at least let the Holy Spirit have room to work in your heart and in your life and let God transform you spiritually through this conversation. If there's anything we can do for you, reach out to us. I'm not a, I'm not a podcast host. You can find me on Twitter, Brian A. Townsend. You can find me on Instagram uh, under that same handle, Facebook, all these guys. We'd love to help you in any way possible, no matter when you're hearing this, when you're listening to this. Um, we just hope God blesses you yeah. and your walk with God becomes transformed. Brian, thanks for those last closing words there. I want to ask if you wouldn't mind praying for us, praying for the our listeners. You know, this is a tough topic. It took me you know, three, four years to come through and to be where I'm at now. And it's not an overnight transformation. It's just like I tell people when we go to funerals, just because you bury someone doesn't mean the grieving process is over. Uh, you know, and when we hear those things, it still brings up those memories and those maybe hurt or pain or whatever it may be. And so I just pray for our listeners, pray for guidance as we continue on the show. And thank you for coming on and being a guest today. Yeah. Thank you. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. And God, we are grateful today to know that we can stand with validity on truth. Lord, uh, Jesus in John 14, 15, taught that when he, the spirit has come, that he would guide us into all truth. And Lord, I pray through this conversation that as you've guided people into truth, 
Lord, that you would open their eyes and their hearts and show them that you love them and show them that you are kind and loving and that you are crazy about us. And that, Lord, sometimes we read and listen to other people speak, Lord, and they don't always have integrity when they do it. And, Lord, I pray for those that have been, uh, not from a King James only standpoint, abused, but spiritually abused and spiritually beaten, and those that have been mistreated as the sheep and the bride of Christ. Lord, I pray that in this work, you would speak truth to them and that that truth would reveal more about Christ. And in this conversation, Lord, we'd be honest and have more room to become like Christ today. We love you, Father. And thank you for everything you've said and done. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Brian. I'm going to pull back the, the curtain and go behind the scenes a little bit. I like those behind the scenes features with, with, with DVDs and stuff like that and give you guys sort of a glimpse of what uh, I appreciate Brian coming on and, and doing what he did uh, today and, and last week. Uh, we actually were uh, tried to get this all done in one episode, one mega episode. And then we were an hour in and my Zoom thing completely shut down last week and then it popped back up. And I had no idea what I had recorded or not. And whenever we finished up, I had the first part recorded, but the second part not. And so Brian was gracious to just say, let's, let's just do it again next week. And so he came on again and basically all of this stuff we just redid. And uh, so I really appreciate him taking his time to do that. And there is one last thing that I do want you to redo. And that is our, our lightning round questions that we uh, we didn't get to do with you the first time you were on. And so here's seven questions so they can know a little bit more about Brian Townsend. And uh, are you ready? Yes. I am CT's little brother. Yes. Go ahead. <laughs> mm, come on. A little name dropping there. <laughs> That's what you call clickbait. Not name dropping it. It's been a curse to me all my life. I've been the celebrity's little brother. Clickbait. Clickbait. I'm hearing it. Okay. All right. Number one, Brian, what's your favorite food? Steak, medium rare. No, medium rare. Yes, medium rare. Medium rare. Yes. He likes it bloody. Mm. All right. Number two, what's your favorite snack? Cool Ranch Doritos, sir. That's a good one. That's a good one. Bad breath, but that's a good one. That's terrible breath, but yes, it's worth it. <laughs> I'm not married. I don't have a wife to kiss. So. Come on. All right. Number three, favorite book of the Bible. Second hesitations. No, I kid. The gospel of probably the gospel of Luke. The gospel of Luke. Nice. All right. Number four, favorite movie. Fast and the Furious, the whole series. All of them are fantastic. All of them. Okay. Do you, well, do you have a favorite in the series? Like the, the one first one's I the best. seven when Paul Walker had died and him and Vin Diesel go on separate roads and they're playing It's a Long Road, I'll See You, My Friend. I can't watch it without crying. It just gets <laughs> me, man. Yeah, I think uh, I like the I like the one where the, the, the Fast Five. I like yeah, the, the one in, 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 was it Brazil? Yeah, and, they, uh, they steal the bank vault out of the police station. Right, That's that good. one's good. The, okay, but the I have to ask you still the question. best. I'm a movie buff, so I have to ask you this question. Are you on the Justice for Han bandwagon? Define Justice for Han. Jason Statham getting his? Is that what you mean? Yeah. 
I mean, I don't think he's going to get his because they're all working together now. Um, and he's actually transformed into a guy that you like, but I am, I'm very pro Han and I'm not happy about him dying like he did. Yeah. All right. More, more serious, more, more righteous things. So favorite Bible story. Hmm. Probably the gospel is the story of Christ. I know that's a cheap answer as far as, you know, it's easy, not cheap, but it's an easy answer. So Jesus's life isn't cheap. <laughs> I, I edit that out. Je- the life of Jesus is my favorite Bible story. All right. I don't know if you're going to be able to remember this from last week because you had it right in front of you last week. Last book you finished. Okay. It was I your New Testament, Testament survey textbook from last week called the New Testament in Antiquity. How, how, uh, just, uh, just cause I'm curious, how thick was that book? Um, let's just say that it would be thicker than a large print King James size family Bible you put on your grandmama's table. Man. <laughs> that's just, that's a perfect, that's a perfect answer. Uh, all right, and then um, we know that uh, your family is is your uh, energetic daughter, Ellie, and uh, and so this last question is: What's your favorite activity to do with your daughter? Well, I antagonize her a good bit, so, but that's probably not wholesome. That people <laughs> would enjoy. Um, we love to go pre-COVID. We love to go in Chick Fil A, and she would play. Um, we love to go to hot. She loves to go to Hobby Lobby. I don't understand. She loves to go to Hobby Lobby for the toys, not the crafts, the little toy aisle they have there. She loves to go to Hobby Lobby. So that's stuff like that. And um, we just have a good time no matter what we're doing. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you again, Brian, for, for being on and, and just, uh, you know, we, we have fun. You guys don't get yeah. to see the stuff before and after, but we, we have a good time. And uh, me and James going to have him make a, Make an effort to go down to Georgia and uh, and hang out with you. You have to show us the. You want me to tell you something Athens. down here? The devil's so bad down here they had to write a song about him. Come on, <laughs> old Charlie Daniels for you. I was I was down there last week and Brian didn't even want to see me, guys. I'm, I'm still a little hurt. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> guys are killing me. All right, thank you guys so much for listening to the podcast and. Uh, uh, make sure to like and subscribe and uh, share the podcast on your favorite social media platforms. Uh, we appreciate all the support and love that you've given us and and, and, and listening. Uh, and until next time, to God, not Brian Townsend. Be the glory. <laughs> <laughs>